Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, I have no guest but something to say about Ukraine. The death and suffering in Ukraine does not yet remotely compare with that in Yemen. Nor does the death and suffering from war in Yemen yet compare with that around the world resulting from the misdirection of resources into war. Not to mention the impediments to urgently needed global cooperation created by war. But we talk about Ukraine not only because it's in corporate media and involves relatively wealthy, weapons-dealing European nations waging war at home instead of in distant lands, but also because it has created the greatest risk of nuclear apocalypse yet seen on Earth. There are other possible flashpoints in Iran, Taiwan, Korea, and Syria, in all of which the U.S. government is behaving in a manner that makes World War III more likely. But the leading contender for Archduke Ferdinand of Armageddon is Ukraine. The good news is that the shine is wearing off. A CNN poll finds a slight majority in the U.S. opposed to how Biden is handling Ukraine. Corporate newspapers list the war in a long list of Biden's failures. Among elected officials, Republicans make partisan noises about possibly not funding this war with every last possible dollar forever. Maybe. But let's keep this in context. There's never been a war this wearing off of the shine didn't happen with. There's no critique of militarism permitted in corporate media or national U.S. politics. The slight criticism permitted of war spending is used to prevent criticism of corporate profits or of self-destructive sanctions, or indeed of ordinary, non-Ukraine war spending, which is in the process of being dramatically increased with no opposition in Congress or mention in the media, as corporate profits and sanctions combine with war spending to create higher gas prices for people lacking both mass transportation and media outlets that allow talk of shifting war spending into mass transportation. The main current of corporate commentary still drifts between predictions of imminent victory and resolutions to stay the course no matter how long it takes, with no useful discussion of what the war means for nuclear dangers, for global handling of climate or pandemics or refugees, or for the spending of resources on useful and necessary things. Properly and gloriously pursuing the war is, of course, opposed to shamefully and treasonously negotiating an end to the war. Once begun, wars must simply last forever rather than be lost, as they all must be if they aren't continued. The operations that are not doomed to defeat are handled as coups or threats or bribes, not wars. But some of them, if they last long enough, are likely to defeat the entire enterprise of life on Earth. And some people seem to realize this while pushing ahead anyway. New York City recently released a painfully ludicrous public safety video with tips for surviving a nuclear bomb, such as, get inside. And the response was mostly not to point out what a bomb does, or why there would be multiple bombs, or how a nuclear winter happens, but rather to mock the very idea that nuclear war is worth worrying about. 
The facts suggest it is more likely than ever, but a decision has been made to simply treat it as impossible. A recent poll showed 0% of people in the U.S. worried about war, nuclear or otherwise, as their top concern, and 1% worried about climate, with 33% concerned about inflation, which is actually good for people who have debts, and 15% concerned about gas prices which is completely understandable, even though higher gas prices is the one pro-climate change that's been made in the United States. Needless to say, we need a ceasefire and a negotiated settlement. Numerous world governments have said so, but not done much to make it happen. Unfortunately, neither side much likes the idea, preferring to gamble with human life for a bigger win. As with the war in Korea and many others, a negotiated settlement would look a lot like pre-war agreements, albeit with a lot of people dead and buildings destroyed. And who wants that? Not the right-wing militarists in Ukraine or Russia, not weapons dealers, not media outlets, not people who actually believe six years of tales of Russia stealing U.S. elections and owning Donald Trump not people who believe that either Russia or NATO had no choice and have no choice and that it's all a little bit exciting. I believe that Biden and Putin are trying their absolute best to imagine that they are living in World War II right now, as depicted in U.S. and Russian celebrations. Each declares he is fighting Hitlerian forces, even though they are fighting each other. Each declares war and escalation to be absolutely inevitable and therefore the gravest sin to be appeasement of the other side. Each swears the fight to be purely defensive and yet that defensiveness to require endless fighting for the goal of unconditional surrender by the aggressor. The lessons both sides have learned from World War II are war is glorious, War is inevitable, so you'd better start it and win it. There is no nonviolent alternative to war. The evil of the other side justifies any and all evil by yourself. The lessons they ought to have learned are War is the worst thing there is. Reckless disregard for peace is extremely dangerous. Nonviolent action powerful even 75 years ago, has developed into the most effective set of tools. Evil cannot be justified. Risking nuclear war is madness. It's impossible for either side to see, but Russia and NATO depend on each other. Whichever side you're on, you agree with weapons maker propaganda that the available actions in the world are one, war, and two, doing nothing. You ignore the historical record of nonviolent action succeeding more often than war, and you imagine militarism to be required completely independently from considering what the results will be. It's possible for some people to glimpse the stupidity and counterproductive nature of war as long as they look at old wars and don't apply any lessons learned to current wars. An author in Germany of a book about the stupidity of World War I is right now busy telling people to stop learning lessons from him and applying them to Ukraine. Many are able to look somewhat honestly at the 2003 begun stage of the U.S. war on Iraq, 
the pretended weapons of mass destruction, according to CIA predictions, were only likely to be used if Iraq were attacked. So Iraq was attacked. A big part of the problem was supposedly how much those people hated us. So although the surest way to make people hate you was to attack them, they were attacked. NATO has spent decades hyping, exaggerating, and lying about a Russian threat and simply drooling over the possibility of a Russian attack, inevitably knowing that it would radically boost NATO membership, bases, weapons, and popular support by attacking, even if the attack actually demonstrated its military weakness. Russia proclaimed that because of the NATO threat, it must attack and enlarge the NATO threat. Of course, I'm the lunatic for suggesting that Russia should have used unarmed civilian defense in Donbass. But is there anyone alive who thinks NATO would have been able to add all these new members and bases and weapons and U.S. troops without the radical escalation of the war in Ukraine by Russia? Will anyone pretend that NATO's biggest benefactor is Biden or Trump or anyone other than Russia? Sadly, there are a lot of people who do imagine, just as ridiculously, that NATO expansion wasn't needed to create the Russian invasion, that in fact more NATO expansion would have prevented it. We're supposed to imagine that NATO membership has protected numerous nations from Russian threats that have never been hinted at by Russia, and to completely erase from all human awareness the nonviolent action campaigns the singing revolutions that some of those nations used to defeat Soviet invasions and kick out the Soviet Union. World Beyond War is planning an online screening of the film The Singing Revolution with a discussion with the filmmakers. NATO expansion made the current war possible, and further NATO expansion as a response to it is insane. Russian war-making drives NATO expansion, and further Russian war-making is a lunatic's response to NATO. Yet here we are. With Lithuania blockading Kaliningrad, here we are with Russia putting nukes into Belarus, here we are with the U.S. saying not one word about the violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty by Russia, because it's long had nukes in five other countries, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, Italy, Turkey, and has just put them into a sixth, UK. And had put bases capable of launching nukes into Poland and Romania as a key step in the steady and predictable build-up to this mess. Russian dreams of quickly conquering Ukraine and dictating the results were plain nuts if actually believed. U.S. dreams of conquering Russia with sanctions are sheer madness, if actually believed. But what if the point is not to believe in these things so much as to counter hostility with hostility, having taken a principled stand within one's head against acknowledging any alternatives? It doesn't matter whether attacking Ukraine will work. NATO continues its relentless advance, refuses to negotiate, and aims eventually at attacking Russia, so our choices are to attack Ukraine or do nothing. This despite NATO's need for Russia as an enemy, despite the desire spelled out in a RAND study and by the USAID to provoke Russia into a war in Ukraine and not to attack Russia. This despite the fact that it would surely backfire. 
It doesn't matter whether sanctions will work. They've failed dozens of times, but it's a question of principle. One must, do bus one must not do business with the enemy, even if sanctions strengthen the enemy, even if they create more enemies, even if they isolate you and your club more than the target. It doesn't matter. The choice is escalation or doing nothing. And even if actually doing nothing would be better, Doing nothing simply means an unacceptable choice. Both sides are thus mindlessly escalating toward nuclear war, convinced there are no off-ramps, yet pouring black paint on the windshield for fear of seeing what lies ahead. I went on a Russian U.S. radio show recently and tried to explain to the hosts that Russia's war-making was as evil as anyone else's. They wouldn't stand for that claim, of course, though they made it themselves. One of the hosts denounced the evils of the NATO assault on the former Yugoslavia and demanded to know why Russia shouldn't have the right to use similar excuses to do the same thing to Ukraine. Needless to say, I replied that NATO should be condemned for its wars and Russia should be condemned for its wars, and when they go to war with each other, they should both be condemned. This being the actual real world, there is of course nothing equal about any two wars or any two militaries or any two war lies, so I will be weeding out the emails responding to this, screaming at me for equating everything. But being anti-war, as these radio hosts repeatedly claimed to be, in between their comments supporting war, actually requires opposing wars. It seems to me that the very least that war supporters could do would be to stop claiming to be anti-war. But that won't be enough to save us. We also need a massive global demand for a ceasefire and negotiated peace. People can start by signing the ceasefire petition at worldbeyondwar.org. The unknown twin of climate collapse is nuclear devastation. The main difference is that it's faster. We now have a desperate need for people to learn about it faster. Toward that end, here are a few points on nuclear weapons. Nukes are the tough-on-crime of foreign policy. There are less costly, less destructive, more effective means of protecting a country than nukes. Just as schools are not understood as crime prevention, even though they are the very best crime prevention tool in existence, the tools of diplomacy, cooperation, disarmament, the rule of law, and unarmed civilian protection are not thought of as capital D defense, even though they are the very best protection available. Claiming that nuclear weapons in Ukraine could have prevented a Russian invasion requires ignoring the fact that not putting missile bases into Poland and Romania and not threatening to put them into Ukraine could also have prevented a Russian invasion and requires ignoring all the nations that have given up their nukes or passed up having nukes and not been invaded. Nukes are the we're aware of climate change of foreign policy. It's generally considered well-educated to acknowledge the existence of climate collapse, but to go on with all the practices and industries that are driving it, and to claim that there are endless ways in which you can undo the damage later. Similarly, one can get an op-ed into the New York Times or Washington Post by admitting that your proposals 
could cause nuclear apocalypse, but proposing them anyway. When Henry Kissinger is arguing that the universal consensus is reckless warmongering, you just might have a problem. The nuclear deterrence theory depends on threatening and seeming to mean it without meaning it. Getting Vladimir Putin to believe you mean it while counting on all the people paid and trained to do it, to recognize that you don't mean it, is one hurdle. Getting Putin to believe you mean it, but that you don't mean it too immediately or definitely, is another problem. One of the downsides of nukes is the serious risk of eliminating all life on Earth. There are plenty of minor downsides and dubious upsides, but it's all overshadowed by the super big enormous downside that the doomsday clock tells us is more likely now than ever, and that the mere passage of time virtually guarantees given the record of near-miss incidents and accidents. Apocalypse is becoming acceptable. Polls are finding a growing percentage of people in the U.S. willing to risk nuclear apocalypse, and even bigger percentages willing to support policies that increase the risk. Meanwhile, there's been an increase in admitting that climate change exists, but not in supporting doing anything about it. In fact, support for addressing climate collapse is declining. A recent study found that it's easy enough to get a majority in the U.S. to support nuclear war unless you give them a vivid description, unless you show them a picture of nuclear war. Just do a search for Hiroshima or Nagasaki. On the upcoming 77th anniversaries of those horrors, World Beyond War is planning a number of online events and a real-world event in Washington, D.C., including an online screening and discussion of The Day After, the most-watched television movie ever, which, has such an, which had such an impact in the 1980s that people became temporarily aware of the problem. RootsAction.org and a number of groups have created a website with more information about nuclear war, at defusenuclearwar.org. We are paying people piles of money for the nuclear weapons buildup, and they are buying our elections with it. The owners of weapons-making sociopathic corporations are getting stinking rich, putting all life on Earth at risk. The solutions are painfully obvious. There's no great mystery what to do, how governments could do it, or how people could compel governments to do it. Yet it's not being done. If you are the U.S. government, you commit to not using nukes in Ukraine or anywhere ever. You join the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. You immediately begin complying with it and with other treaties you're violating so that people take it seriously. You remove your nukes from other countries you've put them in. You take the weapons off the missiles. You dismantle and destroy the weapons, beginning with the land-based ones. Yes, unilaterally. And you facilitate the denuclearization of other countries by defunding militarism in general and by investing in actually green energy. 
If you are the U.S. public, you work on divestment, education, agitation, and organization, learning from and building on the history of successful popular actions against nuclear madness. You work to persuade people not to support more war in Ukraine and not to support more investment in the institution of war at all. Basic forbidden facts like the following can help. These are taken from a rootsaction.org petition to the world's governments. Neither the United States nor Russia is a party to the International Criminal Court, and the United States punishes other governments for supporting the ICC. Both the United States and Russia defy the rulings of the International Court of Justice. Of 18 major human rights treaties, Russia is party to only 11, and the United States to only five, as few as any nation on earth. Both nations violate treaties at will, including the United Nations Charter, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and other laws against war. While most of the world upholds disarmament and anti-weapons treaties, the United States and Russia refuse to support and openly defy major treaties. There is a problem in world leadership. Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine, as well as the previous years of U.S.-slash-Russian struggle over Ukraine, including U.S.-backed regime change in 2014, Russia's annexation of Crimea, and the mutual arming of conflict in Donbass, highlight this problem in global leadership. Russia and the United States stand as rogue regimes outside the Landmines Treaty, the Arms Trade Treaty, the Convention on Cluster Munitions, prohibiting their use, production, and transfer, and many other treaties. Russia stands accused of using cluster bombs in Ukraine, while U.S.-made cluster munitions have been used by Saudi Arabia near civilian areas in Yemen. The United States and Russia are the top two dealers of weaponry to the rest of the world, together accounting for a majority of weapons sold and shipped. Meanwhile, most places experiencing wars manufacture no weapons at all. Weapons are imported to most of the world from a very few places. Neither the United States nor Russia supports the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Neither complies with the disarmament requirement of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The United States and Russia are the top two users of the veto power at the UN Security Council, each frequently shutting down democracy with a single vote. There are about 200 other governments on Earth, and they shouldn't stand for this we must appeal to the world's non-imperial governments to democratize the United Nations, the International Court of Justice, and the International Criminal Court, and to impose the rule of law by supermajority consensus on the planet's rogue states. A balance of power, meaning hostility and threats, will not save us. Only a globalization and universalization of power that allows for cooperation there's nothing more important than avoiding destroying all life on Earth. We can't picture a planet devoid of life and happily think, well, at least we stood up to Putin. Or, well, at least we stood up to NATO. Or, well, we had principles. 
It's important for us to understand that keeping militaries around kills vastly more people than the wars do, and that this will be true until the wars become nuclear. This is because 3% of just U.S. military spending could end starvation on Earth. Militaries divert resources from environmental and human needs, including disease pandemics, as well as preventing global cooperation on pressing emergencies, severely damaging the environment, eroding civil liberties, weakening the rule of law, justifying government secrecy, corroding culture, and fueling bigotry. Historically, the U.S. has seen an upsurge in racist violence following major wars. Other countries have too. Militaries also make those they are supposed to protect less safe rather than more. Where the U.S. builds bases, it gets more wars. Where it blows people up, it gets more enemies. Most wars have U.S. weapons on both sides because it's a business. NATO is a commitment of each member to join in any war that any other member gets in. It's the very madness that created World War I. No country has a right to join it. To join it, any country has to agree to its war pact and all other members have to agree to include that country and join in all of its wars. When NATO destroys Afghanistan or Libya, the number of members doesn't make the crime more legal. Trump supposedly opposing NATO doesn't make NATO a good thing. What Trump did was get NATO members to buy more weapons. With enemies like that, NATO doesn't need friends. Russia's demands have been to get missiles and weapons and troops and NATO away from its border, exactly what the U.S. demanded when the USSR put missiles in Cuba. The U.S. refused to meet any such demands. Russia had choices other than war. Russia was making a case to the global public, evacuating people threatened by Ukraine and mocking predictions of an invasion. Russia could have embraced the rule of law and aid, while Russia's military costs 8% of what the U.S. spends, that's still enough that either Russia or the U.S. could have filled Donbass with unarmed civilian protectors and de-escalators, funded educational programs across the world on the value of cultural diversity in friendships and communities and the abysmal failures of racism, nationalism, and Nazism, filled Ukraine with the world's leading solar wind and water energy production facilities, replaced the gas pipeline through Ukraine and never built one north of there with electric infrastructure for Russia and Western Europe, kicked off a global reverse arms race, joined human rights and disarmament treaties, and joined the International Criminal Court. Ukraine has alternatives right now. People in Ukraine are stopping tanks unarmed, changing street signs, blocking roads, putting up billboard messages to Russian troops, talking Russian troops out of war. Biden praised these actions in his State of the Union. We should demand that media outlets cover them. There are many examples in history of nonviolent action defeating coups, occupations, and invasions. If either the U.S. or Russia had tried for years not to win Ukraine to its camp, but to train Ukrainians in non-cooperation, Ukraine would be impossible to occupy. We have to stop saying I'm against all war except this one. Every time there's a new war, we have to support alternatives to war. We have to start spotting propaganda. 
we have to stop obsessing over the few foreign dictators that the U.S. doesn't fund and arm. We can join in solidarity with courageous peace activists in Russia and in Ukraine. We can seek out ways to volunteer for nonviolent resistance in Ukraine. We can support groups like Nonviolent Peace Force that have greater success unarmed than do armed UN troops called peacekeepers. We can tell the U.S. government that there is no such thing as lethal aid and that we insist on actual aid and serious diplomacy and an end to NATO expansion. We can demand that with the U.S. media now liking peace demonstrations as long as they're in Russia, it cover some in the U.S. and include some anti-war voices. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org. Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.